Alright, welcome back. <clears throat> Alright, welcome back everybody. I want to invite you back to the room. If you're the last one in, close the door. Sound like a grumpy dad. We're trying to we're not trying to heat the air foyer out there. If we can uh, <clears throat> make our way back in, we're going to look at the, the book of Jude. It's not really a book. Uh, so let's look at Jude, and uh, we're going to explore verses 8 through 11 this morning. Uh, I'm sorry, 11 through 13 today. <clears throat> As you turn to Jude, uh, just by way of reminder, Jude has written his letter warning not about dangers outside the church. Uh, dangers outside the church are always going to be there. There will always be persecution for those who carry the cross. If they persecuted Jesus, uh, they will persecute his followers. And so we're not concerned about dangers outside the church. There will always be that there. And as a matter of fact, the church is in no danger whatsoever. Uh, when the cultural temperature heats up against Christianity, it has a purifying, growing effect rather than a, a killing effect. Uh, all you have to do is read the book of Acts and you remember right away uh, at the, the killing of James, um, the, the church experienced a great persecution and it's almost like a fire that once it was stamped out, sparks flew everywhere and the gospel everywhere a spark hit, a new fire grew. Persecution spreads the church. Uh, I was reminded of this this past week when I thought about uh, in 1949, missionaries um, were expelled from China. All around the world, missionaries were sent home from China, uh, and many missionaries were afraid that once they left, that the progress that the church had made, the 1.8 million or so believers that had been won to Christ in China pre-1949, they were afraid that, uh, that that church would die away. It took 27 years through the rule of Mao Zedong to, to, for missionaries to be invited back in or for nationals, uh, international people to be invited back into China. And when they got there, rather than finding a dead church, they found that Protestants in China had tripled during that time period. Uh, I read a story just this past week of a pastor uh, preaching to a group of, of um, people in China in the secret church. And as he, as, as what you've seen videos like this before, they pass out the Bible. And once a Chinese believer gets a Bible, they're often filled with tears. Uh, they will memorize passages. So once they passed out these Bibles in this particular church, um, the pastor, as he was preaching, as he was turning to the text, he noticed that one person received the Bible and was thrilled to have it. And then when he said, turn to Second Peter, that person closed the Bible and put it down and handed it to another person who didn't have one and just sat there, uh, arms folded. And when he found out later why, it was because that person, that woman, uh, had memorized Peter the entire book of Second Peter. And so because he was preaching from it, she felt no need for her to read the Bible, but gave it away to somebody else. And when he asked her, how did you memorize Second Peter? She said it was during a three-year stint in prison for preaching the gospel and for being a believer. Um, it was um, that sort of persecution 
that purifies the church and causes the church to grow. Listen, you may be afraid for Christianity because of a presidential change in America, but Jesus is not worried, okay? He is not up there uh, pulling his um, celestial hair out wondering if the church will survive. Jesus said um, at at the, the gates of Hades would not prevail against it. God has no fear that any president or culture will destroy the church. We have no fear of that either. So just by way of reminder, we're not afraid of outside persecution or we're not afraid that the culture or that a presidential administration or something else will damage the church. If anything, that will strengthen the church. That will fortify the church. That will purify the church. I think it's actually a great thing that cultural Christianity is dying away. People who just attend church for cultural purposes that aren't necessarily sincere followers of Jesus, but have just sort of because it's been a cultural thing to do, have participated in the life of the church for a number of years because there's influence in government and because it's a a respectable thing to be a part of a church. Now that the tide has changed against the church and the gospel, you will find a purifying of the church and the believers who are sincere in their faith will rise up and be strengthened and will be a greater effective witness for Jesus Christ. And the church will uh, see a purifying uh, effect in our culture. It's a good thing. That's all bonus. That has nothing to do with Jude, right? The thing that has to do with Jude is he's not warning about outside stuff. Jude is warning about inside things. When he's saying to contend for the faith, He's not saying to go outside the church. He's saying to contend for the faith inside the church because there are people who have come into the church who are seeking to corrupt it through um, immoral influence and false teaching. That's where he says to rise up. And so in the context of where we are reading in Jude 11 through 13, we are gathering evidence against the heretics who have invaded the church to do her harm and to say uh, serve themselves. So the question I ask is, can you spot a wolf? Can you spot a wolf? If we were looking out the window at a flock of sheep and you saw a shadowy figure crouched down in the grass, you would say, yes, I can see. That's a wolf. They're uh, there for false purposes. But Jude's warning is that these are hidden reefs. The whole purpose behind a hidden reef is you don't see it. It's under the surface. And there is a danger to those who are sent in by the enemy to corrupt the body and bride of Christ. Now, people go to churches for many reasons. Not everybody who is not a believer is a satanic missionary, okay? People come to churches for a variety of reasons. Maybe they're searching. Maybe they're um, asking questions of the gospel. Is it real? Can my life be changed? Is Jesus sincere? Can he forgive my sins? Is the Bible real? I've lived a certain way and they're here looking for answers. That is a noble reason to be a part of a church. Other people go to church because it's been a cultural part of their heritage. Their parents went to church. Their grandparents went to church. Their great-grandparents went to church. And so because of that, this is a part of their regular rhythm and routine. Other people are just seeking um, authentic community in which they can have friends and they can uh, experience greater friendships and relationships and speak a kind of a common language that they understand. Others are here to make business contacts and to be able to kind of sell and trade. There are a number of reasons why people go to church. 
But Jude is talking about a different kind, a person who is coming in with a false gospel and an immoral attitude, seeking to infiltrate and influence people away from Jesus and the faith. And Jude's going to tell us in verse 22, have mercy on those who doubt, that is, have mercy on the ones who these invaders have influenced. And in verse 23, save others by snatching them out of the fire. That is, those who have been influenced by these invaders within the church, grab them and pull them back after you contend for the faith. And to others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garments that are stained by the flesh, meaning be merciful toward those who have been influenced by these immoral false teachers who are serving their own purposes in the church. They are shepherds feeding themselves. So how do we spot a wolf? He's giving us evidences. The rhythm of Jude is to present a judgment. They deserve judgment. And then to present evidence against them of why they deserve judgment. We've gone through a handful of those. Last week, the sermon was about all the indictments in 8.16 of all the things that they've done wrong that show that they're worthy to be judged by God for corrupting the church. Today, we add a few more. So let's read verses 11 through 13. Jude says, woe to them, that is these false teachers, heretics, and invaders. Woe to them, they have walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. He says, these are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. They are shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, Fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead and uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Let's pray and we'll look at the passage today. Father, thank you for your word. We pray that your word would go out. That as you speak, that we would have ears to hear. It amazes me that in a group this size and with people tuning in online um, from their living rooms or on their phones in their cars and different places, that uh, of all the people who are hearing these words, you are able to take the unchangeable word of God and apply it specifically to each hearer's life as they have ears to hear. I pray that you would speak and that you would use your word to change us and to transform us. I pray for grace and strength for those who would see themselves in this passage, that you would cause them to repent and to fear you and to walk with you. Give us the ears to hear today. We pray that you would bless your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, well, let's jump down to verse 12 and start at the end. We're only looking at 10, 11, and 12, but let's let's jump to uh, 10, 11, 12, and 13, I'm sorry, uh, and just look... Can I speak right? 11 through 13 is the focal point. Let's look at 11, uh, 12 and 13. There are five occurrences in nature that demonstrate the worthlessness and the danger of these people who have crept into the church. The five just natural occurrences that he mentions. One is um, that they are hidden reefs. Um, a hidden reef is dangerous because it's unseen. Uh, If you were on a boat and you were captaining this boat and you were taking it into a harbor and it looked safe, it looked uh, calm, the the relatively few waves uh, in this place, the reef is danger. It's dangerous because the danger it poses is not immediately apparent. And thus they are as perilous as rocks that cause shipwreck when a ship is seeking harbor. This is how Tom Schreiner describes it. 
Those within this church, he calls them hidden reefs. Uh, Shepherds who feed themselves. That is that they had a teaching position, but their apparent danger, though imminent, is often undetected. And you can hear it as you start to think about false teaching within the church today. Some of it sounds good. Some of it sounds really good. A lot of it is truth mixed with just a little bit of error. And so it's a call for the believers to be like Bereans, right? We talk about Bereans in Acts 13, that they were more noble than those of Thessalonica, and that everything Paul said, they went home and tested it according to the word to see if it were true. There was a testing, a discerning ear that said, just because a person stands behind a pulpit like this and reads the Bible, it doesn't mean that everything they say is good, solid doctrinal teaching. And the greatest compliment that any of you give to me is coming to me afterward and say, I don't know if, if I agree with this. We help me understand what you meant by this. And what did you say by this? I don't assume that any of you should listen to my words and just take them as truth without discerning for yourself and going back to the word of God itself. There is an accountability that is developed here in this room. And for those who are hearing these messages that I'm not above error and, and above um, accusation. If, if there's something that you hear from me that doesn't ring true, you should be the first to call me on that and say, help me understand what you meant by this phrase or what you meant by that phrase. We should not be people who just because a person has a biblical knowledge and a pulpit and a microphone, that doesn't mean that they're without error and are good teachers. He describes them as hidden reefs in that their danger was there. It just wasn't apparent. And so when we hear the word of God preached, there should be a discerning and an understanding on your part to, um, to try to discern if it's true or not, like the Bereans. But he also says that they're like waterless clouds uh, and fruitless trees and foam in the sea, right? All three of those things just describe something that... Um, that's bark is bigger than its bite. You understand that phrase? You see, uh, you see someone who whose words are big, but their actions are small, or someone who is boastful about things that they have accomplished, but in reality they haven't accomplished much. It's a believer who doesn't have any fruit to them. One of the ways that you can discern if a person is a, a sincere Christ follower and they're a teacher is to inspect the fruit, to look at the fruitfulness of their ways. Is there, uh, are there people who have put their faith in Jesus Christ as a result of their ministry with them, or are they just filled with knowledge? Do they actually have good works that they can point to as evidences for the work that God is doing in and of them? People, uh, Christ followers are fruitful in works and gifts and service and spiritual fruit being produced. But these false teachers were devoid of fruit, a waterless cloud, a fruitless tree in late autumn, a wild wave filled with foam. I saw a video of, of an encroaching wall of foam from the ocean. And this video showed a person kind of bracing themselves, getting ready for impact as this large wall of foam was coming in. And the impact was sort of anticlimactic because it just did nothing. It just they did nothing. The foam just dissipated as they walked into it and they could walk through it. It was unsubstantial. That's a word, insubstantial, unsubstantial. It just didn't have anything to it, this wall of foam. And that's what these people are like. 
They're also compared to wandering stars. Now, we know that stars don't wander. They're fixed and reliable. They were given in Genesis, uh, in creation, Genesis 1, as, as fixed objects by which we could measure our dates and times and seasons and years. Stars are fixed. These are not fixed or reliable. He says these are like wandering stars. They're unreliable and they, uh, they are changing. So let's look back uh, now, transition back to 11 and 12. Uh, or 11, because he's going to describe, uh, he's going to say woe to them, and they're like three people. (laughs) Um, Each of us probably have people that we want to be like. Each of us have people that we pattern our life after, and that we read their books, or we listen to their podcast, or we watch them uh, their shows, or, or we just follow them because we admire them. We look up to them. Paul said to the Corinthians, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so there are people, each of you, that you look up to and you admire. Um, Jude is telling us three people not to look up to. Right? He's, he's going to give them an example of three people that they should not look up to. And he says, woe to them. They walked in the way of Cain. They abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. And they perished in Korah's rebellion. So let's take um, a look at those four aspects. Woe, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. This verse has a progression to it. Uh, if you remember, Psalm 1 has a progression to it. Um, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. Um, But he is like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which bears its fruit in season. That Psalm 1 gives you a a decreasing progression. They walk in the negative way, then they settle down to stand in a path of sinners, and then eventually they are seated in the seat of scoffers. Um, There is a natural decreasing progression um, in their life, and Jude gives us that same thing. They walk in the way of Cain, so they're walking in this way, and then they are abandoning themselves, and then they perish in Korah's rebellion. So these false teachers who invade a church, there is a decreasing way in which they're walking. Others are making progress toward Christ and repentance. I've often told um, friends and family in my experience that as a, a new believer, when I went to college, um, I was pursuing Jesus and righteousness and faith and leaving a life of immorality and leaving a life of wild living and, and irreligiosity. I was leaving all that. And as I was pursuing Christ, uh, all these kind of youth group Christians were l- passing me by, going the opposite way, going toward the life I was leaving as I was going toward the faith and, and Jesus Christ that I, I was leaving what uh, an empty cistern, a life that gave no hope, no joy, no life. It was empty. Uh, and I knew it by experience as an atheistic lost kid. So when I um, sort of was growing in my faith, in my uh, late teens, early 20s, I, I, was being pa- I was just passing by people as they were leaving the faith and I was pursuing Christ. Uh, that's not always the case for, uh, for everyone's experience, but uh, that's the case for these people. They are progressively, uh, progressively walking in wickedness. That's the progression in this passage. They're walking, abandoning, and eventually perishing. So Jude pronounces woe to them. Now, woe... Uh, is like an Old Testament angry prophet word, right? You hear the word woe, and you think um, probably of Isaiah or Jeremiah or Amos, uh, Habakkuk, all these kinds. It's kind of an angry Old Testament word. It's used uh, 50, 87 times in the Bible, this word woe. And um, in 
it's typically in the prophets. 50 of those are in the Old Testament prophets, and they're most often talking about nations around them that have um, been warned and warned and warned, and then once they continually uh, remain stiff-necked and don't respond to the Word of God or the warning of God, um, maybe the best way to put it is if you've ever been on a road trip and you have uh, maybe your mom or dad driving and uh, you're in the backseat with a sibling and they're touching you, right? They're not touching you. They're putting their hand right next to you and, and they're squabbling. And, and the dad says, or the mom says, knock it off back there, right? And the voice gets deeper and they get a little more serious. And then uh, eventually there's another warning. No, you better knock it off. I'm going to pull this car over. Or there's the kind of claw, the, the hand of death that comes back and tries to swat whatever's close or grab a knee. You know, I hate that knee pinch. That parent driving is giving multiple warnings, but woe is when the car pulls over, right? Woe is the end. Woe is when judgment is not just being warned about, but judgment is now pronounced and it is happening. The car, the car is over. The, the, the parent is getting out and a belt is coming off or like something serious is going on. The, the people are going to be separated. That's what the word woe is like. Um, Isaiah uses it in Isaiah 6 um, to display grief, sorrow, misery, or calamity. Remember, he, he's ushered into the presence of God, and he sees the holiness of God, and he sees the righteousness of God. And as an observer, he says, woe is me. Woe is me. I've seen, I, I've seen the Lord and his holiness, and I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. It's a, a personal term of grief, sorrow, misery, or calamity. That's one way it's used, but the majority of ways that it's used is as a curse and a pronouncement of judgment. That's how Jude is using it. That's how the Old Testament prophets use it. And coincidentally, this word woe, um, oftentimes you think, well, that's the angry God of the Old Testament, right? He's the one who's always pronouncing woe on people. But did you know who used the word more often than anyone else? Jesus is the one who uses woe more often than anyone else. Jesus is the one pronouncing judgment, and he pronounces judgment primarily. If you look at Matthew 23, I think he uses it seven times there, 10 times in Matthew, one time in Mark. Uh, he uses it, uh, it's used 12 times in Luke twenty three times in the Gospels, um, and 50 times in the Old Testament prophets. This word woe, Jesus is the champion of the word woe, and he's typically pronouncing judgment on religious people who know the word but fail to act on it. In Matthew 23, he pronounces seven woes against the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and those who are religious leaders. He calls them whitewashed tombs. He says that you're clean on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. Jesus is the one who pronounces woe, and it's a curse. Jude is cursing those in the church. He's saying they've heard the word, they've been under the word, they've been in the community, in the fellowship, but they've demonstrated that they're deserving of cursing and woe and judgment because of their unrepentant behavior within the body of Christ. Not outside the church. They're already under a judgment outside of Christ, but inside the church, the contention for the faith happening right here, not in this room. We're not going to, you know, pull the chairs out and have a brawl or contending or anything. But, but he's saying within the big C church, the church in the world, the worldwide church of God is that we have to understand to contend uh, with those who have infiltrated the church for negative reasons. Then he gives three examples. Cain, 
Balaam and Korah. So let's look at Cain. You're familiar with Cain. Uh, Even people who are not uh, students of the Bible can probably pull a trivia question if they were asked who's Cain, right? Cain was Adam and Eve's first child, the first offspring to the first created couple. And Cain was a farmer. In Genesis 4, we read that he brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Uh, He dropped some vegetables down and his brother Abel just threw a fat steak down with some fat portions. And the Lord said, I'll take the steak and not the vegetables. Amen. Um, He understood worship and the Lord had regard for Abel's offering, but for Cain's offering, he had no regard. And Cain, this sort of text presumes that Cain understood worship and he understood the Lord and he understood how to worship him. And, uh, and he is described as evil He's also described after this event as being very angry and his face fell in response to God's regard for Abel's offering and not his own. So the Lord rebukes Cain in Genesis 4, 6, and this is the woe, the warning before the woe. Why are you so angry, Cain? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain had an opportunity. Hearing the conviction of the Lord to repent and turn to the Lord, repent from his sin and turn to the Lord. But instead, rather than ruling over sin and temptation, Cain invites Abel to to the field. And you know what happened? He, he kills his brother Abel. And the Lord confronts him in judgment. Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Do you want to look at this? It's Genesis 4, 9 through 12. Uh, and he says, am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Even in Cain's response to God's judgment, it's not a matter of sorrow over the sin. He's not grieving Abel. He's not concerned about Adam and Eve, his parents, the mother and father who lost a child at his own hands. His complaint is that the justice of God is too strict and he spurns the justice of God. Cain is described elsewhere in Scripture, and Judah is assuming that we understand the way of Cain, walking in the way of Cain. So what does it mean to walk in the way of Cain? It made me wonder, as I was studying this, was there a a corpus or a body of teaching or oral tradition or rabbinic writings or something that filled out this idea of the way of Cain? When when Jude said the way of Cain, did that have a, a bit of unpacking that had been done that his readers would uh, automatically know what the way of Cain was. Uh, I was unable to find that, but, but as you try to piece together the way of Cain, all of scripture speaks and interprets scripture. So we can surmise this from Cain. He did not worship well. He worshiped in the way that he wanted, not the way God prescribed. That's a very serious offense. God prescribes the way he desires to be worshiped. Jesus said, true worshipers, will worship in spirit and truth, right? They will worship with all their heart and emotion in their spirit, but they will also worship according to truth. 
I hear people say all the time, I worship God in my own way. I go to the field and I, I, I kill a deer or something. That's my way of worship, just being in nature or you know, catching a bass. Like that's how I worship. And, and oftentimes you think, well, of course that's how you, you, you're worshiping like something else. That's not the prescribed, nowhere in scripture is it saying to, you know, find a tree stand and worship me. Like that's, that's not the prescribed way of worship. Cain worshiped according to his own ways. He didn't respond well to criticism or confrontation, but was defensive and angry. He was violent and vengeful, envious of Abel. He was completely self-absorbed. So to walk in Cain's way, we can also read in Hebrews 11.4 that Abel, by faith, offered, offered a more acceptable sacrifice. So Cain did not offer a gift in faith. 1 John 3.12 says we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. John, 1 John describes Cain, walking in the way of Cain, as walking in satanic evil. So if Jude says they walk in the way of Cain, we can understand that, that these aren't just misled people who made an innocent mistake in the church. They are sincerely walking in an evil, satanic way. Balaam. Let's move on to Balaam. Who is Balaam? There are 62 references to Balaam in Scripture. <laughs> that's pretty... That's a lot. I mean, Jesus, Paul, Peter, Moses, Joshua, David, some heavy hitters in Scripture. They're mentioned hundreds and hundreds of times. But a minor character, Balaam, mentioned 62 times. That's a lot. Balaam is a pretty popular minor character. He's mostly mentioned in Numbers Verses, uh, chapters 22 through 24. And then he's picked up again in 2 Peter, Jude, and Revelation, and a couple of other places. But Balaam is a popular guy for as obscure a person in the time period as he was. Numbers 22 through 24. You don't have to read it um, now. You don't have to turn there now. But let me just kind of give you his background. He was a non-Israelite hired by Balak, the king of Midian. And this was occurring when the Israelites had left Egypt and were on their way to the promised land. And Balak saw the whole Israelite nation, the millions of them, and said, I need somebody to curse them. And he knew just the guy. So he hired Balaam, who, I mean, if you read Numbers 22, you're confused about Balaam. He, he uh, worships God in a way that God prescribes. He sacrifices bulls and makes altars, and, and he, he has a, a, a sincere prayer life. He hears from God. The angel of the Lord interacts with him. He has, um, you look in, at Balaam, and he's confusing. He's outside of Israel, but he has a knowledge of the one true God and an intimacy with that God. And he knows his word, and he knows his ways. But, but Balaam has a secret issue in that he's greedy. He's greedy for gain. And so when Balak hires him, the angel of the Lord says, hey, don't go curse Israel. You have to bless them. And so Balaam is like, I, I can't curse them. I have to bless them. So he goes to these two or three different places and he stands over and he looks at them. And Balak is finally furious. Like, I told, I, I paid you to curse them. And all you're doing is blessing them. And he says, I can't go beyond what the Lord has told me to do. There's actually one time that's curious as well, that you probably know the story of Balaam from this story. 
he straps on, you know, his saddle and gets on his donkey, uh, his faithful donkey, right? (laughs) And he's riding through a vineyard on his way to curse or to bless Israel. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, his donkey like veers off into a wall and jangles up his leg and mars up his shins and his calf. And like he just, and, and Balaam, by the third time this happened, is so angry, he gets off the donkey and he starts beating the donkey. And the donkey looks up at him and he says, how long have I been your donkey? Haven't I been your donkey all your life? And he's like, yeah, you've been my donkey. He just starts talking to a donkey. Yeah, you've been my donkey forever. We've we've walked together a lot, right? And the donkey's like, well, have I ever done this to you before? And Balaam, as though this is normal, is like, no, you know, now that I think about it, you've never done this to me before. Then we're like, why are you beating me now? And it says his eyes were opened and he looked up and he saw the angel of the Lord with a sword hindering his path. That shows you some of the the battle that's happening within Balaam's soul. Balaam is battling in the way that many of you battle. He understands God. He knows God. He knows how to worship God. He knows the word of God, but he's, he's got a secret insidious rival idol. And for him, it's greed for him. It's cash. He, he wanted money and it says he abandoned himself. He abandoned himself. It's an interesting phrase, a curious phrase. It indicates that he lost himself and his dignity and his personhood so that he could have more money. He knew the word. He knew the God of the word. He recognized the angel of the Lord. It wasn't weird to him that a donkey spoke to him. It wasn't weird to him to see the angel of the Lord with a sword and to worship him and to fear him at moments in his life. But Balaam's error. What he abandoned himself for was greed, and it played itself out in this way. We find in 2 Peter 2.15, Balaam loved gain from doing wrong. Uh, That's how he abandoned himself. Uh, We find it in Revelation 2.14, you hold to the teaching of Balaam, who put a stumbling block before the Israelites so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. Balaam came to terms where he was trying to be obedient to God. All right, I won't curse them. But I still want to get paid by Balak. So what do I do? I can't curse them. So I'll consult. And so he consulted and he told them, if you, I can't curse them, but if you want to be a stumbling block to Israel, Midian, here's what you do. You put your most attractive women scantily clad, right? And you just position them all around the path that they're walking in. And I'm keeping this G-rated, all right? <laughs> Scripture is not G-rated. It's actually R-rated. There's one little scene that's probably more than that, but, but I won't get into that. Balaam coached Midian how to trip up the Israelites with immorality. And he did it for a price. And he had no problem with it. So the question for us, a minor point of application is, have you ever been bribed? Have you ever cheated to save a few bucks? Have you been greedy for finances in a way that has caused you to compromise your faith in Jesus, to cut a corner or to dodge a code or to dodge a township or to do things in a different way so that you can make money? That's what it means to walk in the way of Balaam. Balaam was willing 
to not walk in truth, to not walk in integrity, to not walk uh, in righteousness. He was willing to say, it doesn't matter. It's just a township code. It's just a violation of this thing. I'm not going to fill out that application. I'm not going to go through this process. I'm just going to fudge on this. I'm going to lie about that. I'm going to cheat on my taxes. I'm going to... It's a willingness to compromise your integrity and righteousness for the sake of financial gain. That's what it means to walk in the way of Balaam. And Balaam abandoned himself. He was somebody he didn't recognize years later because of all the compromises that he made along the way. Let's look at the third person, uh, Korah. Korah is described in Numbers 16. A lot of interesting characters. Uh, see Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, the fourth book of the Pentateuch. Korah's rebellion is described in Numbers 16. And in Numbers 16, Korah and 250 chiefs. Korah uh, was a Levite in the priestly line. And he and a number of other leaders with authority came to Moses and said, you have gone too far, Moses. Everyone in the congregation is holy. Every one of them. And the Lord is among all of us. So why do you exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? Korah had a problem with authority. And he had a a problem with God's authority in ordaining leaders. Moses was ordained as the leader of Israel and Korah and the 250 rebellious chiefs that he um, put on his side and and, um, influenced toward rebellion. They all got together and said, let's attack and challenge Moses and his authority and his leadership. Moses responds in 16.4. He fell on his face in humility and prayer. <laughs> he, he is, this is how he responds to a challenge. He immediately goes to the Lord and he falls on his face and he says to Korah and his company, in the morning, the Lord will show who is his, who is holy and who he will bring near to him. See, Moses had an understanding that authority is granted by God to those who live under authority. M- Moses had authority because he was under authority. Jesus uh, described that. You remember uh, the, the uh, Roman centurion sent envoys to Jesus and said, hey, can you please come heal my servant? And the envoys got Jesus and they, uh, Jesus went with them. And then along the way, another messenger from the Roman centurion came and he said, hey, listen, um, don't come to my house. I'm unworthy for you to come to my house. But if you say the word, my servant will be healed. He's basically saying, just throw kind of a long distance miracle because I'm unrighteous and unholy and I don't want you to come to my house because I'm so unworthy. And the interesting thing about that passage is the Pharisees had said to Jesus along the way, this guy is worthy. He built our synagogue. He contributes to our faith. He encourages us. He's worthy for you to go to his house. But that guy realized I'm not worthy for Jesus to come to my house. I'm unrighteous. And so he told Jesus, just throw the miracle from the distance because I'm unworthy for you to come. And he, this is how he said it. He said, for I also am a man under authority. I tell this soldier go and he goes. I tell this soldier come and he comes. It's curious his description of being an authority. I'm in authority, but he describes it as a man under authority. Anyone in authority is first under authority. And you'll never be in authority anywhere unless you're first under authority. Under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, under the the authority that God has given to the governing authorities, Romans 13. um, There are places where God just gives you authority in your life. and. For many people, they reject authority. 
And that's what it means to walk in Korah's rebellion. Now, to finish Korah's story, it doesn't end well. He challenges Moses in number 16 with the 250 chiefs. And Moses says, all right, let's just settle this tomorrow. Uh, bring your censer, put some fire in there and some incense. That's uh, sort of a prescribed way of worship. And he said, you guys all bring your censers and I'll bring my censer and Aaron and we'll see who the Lord chooses. And so the next day they come together and all the chiefs that are on Korah's side in the rebellion, they bring their stuff and they come and, and Moses said, now let's just find out who the Lord has chosen. If these people perish in the normal way that people perish, heart attack, fall down a pit, <laughs> if they stumble, uh, if they, you know, get some sort of a disease, if they die a long life later and it's a natural way, then the Lord has not set Aaron and I apart, but has surely, like Korah said, ordained all of us as leaders. But if they were to die in some weird way, and you can see Moses kind of spitballing. He says, if they were to die in some weird way, for example, if the earth were to open up and swallow them whole, and it says, as he was speaking those words, the earth opened itself up, swallowed the entire a rebellious group of Korahs, just their area, just their tents, and just their people. And then it swallowed them up whole, down to Sheol, alive, and then it closed up over them. Can you imagine being a part of that crowd? I would be like, Moses is the leader. I'm not saying another word. I'm totally submissive to Moses at this point, but they perished in Korah's rebellion. So what does that mean for Jude? What is Jude describing of those who perished in Korah's rebellion? You can't escape the fact that false believers who are in a church, you just can't escape it. I'm sorry, that's the word. You can't escape that they reject authority. It's mentioned a dozen times in Scripture. It's mentioned three or four times in Jude itself, starting in verse 4. They pervert the grace of God into sensuality, and they deny the Master and Lord Jesus Christ. They reject authority. Um, they show favoritism, but in every way, they um, are shepherds feeding themselves, and they're not servants under authority. They're, they long for authority, and they reject authority, and they rebel against it. Now, that's the three people. So what do we do in response to this? I mentioned earlier that you try to pattern your life after somebody. You want to, and maybe you read their books, maybe you, you read their blogs, listen to their podcasts, and, and you listen to their teachings and all these things. There are people that you, in a good way, understanding that it's not healthy to put any person on a pedestal. A godly man once said that um, everybody is... Uh, every godly person in Christ is no more than three days away uh, from scandal if they were to let their flesh go. Uh, and most of us are operating on day two anyway. That's how that leader described it. So it's never good for you to put any human leader on a pedestal ever. Uh, men and women will disappoint us. Um, God has granted leadership to um, broken people people who don't have it all together. And in that way, he brings glory to himself by choosing broken vessels. So that's the warning, but we still pattern our life after godly people. We, we benefit from their, from their teaching. But to state that positively, who do you want to pattern your life after? Jude points out three people that you probably are determined to never become, right? Just anybody by show of hands, anybody named Balaam in here? 
No? Any Canes? We don't name our kids Cain, right? I had a stray dog that was sincerely evil. It was an ugly dog. And we called it Cain, like with a C, Cain, uh, because it would snarl and uh, it, was a, it was a wicked dog um, when we had it in college. But we don't really name our kids Cain. Now, I made the mistake of saying we don't name our kids Cora, but I did not mean the lovely Cora over there with a C, uh, but Cora K, because Cora's rebellion. These are people that were determined to never be like. And you can probably think of somebody that you just say, oh, Lord, please help me not to be like that. Oh, Lord, if I, if I should pursue you and walk with you, please help me not to be this way. But we typically become like the people that we're most bitter toward and that we don't want to be like if we make these mistakes. You become the person you don't want to be. Typically, if you follow immorality, if you give yourself lots of grace and exploit your freedom in Christ to live any way that you want to without any uh, repentance or humility, or confession. You walk in that way for a long time and you'll just become somebody that one day you'll look up and you'll say, oh, I can't believe I became the person I didn't want to be. You will be the person you don't want to be if you continually give yourself over to greed and a desire for more wealth and comfort and power. You will cross lines that today you wouldn't believe you would cross. You wouldn't believe 20 years ago that you would be crossing lines that you're crossing now. If you continually give yourself over to greed and a desire for more and more and more, you'll become the person you don't want to be. You'll become the person you never want to be if you give yourself over to theological error and compromise on truth. If you become comfortable with truths, I put that in kind of air quotes, truths that our culture says are true, you will find yourself in a haze of asking what is true and what's not true. Is that a man? I don't know. Is that a woman? I don't know what I'm supposed to call people today. It's just a a cultural malaise of uh, refutation that there is truth that can be discerned and known. And I subject to you that the scripture has the, is is our greatest source of reliable um, witness for walking in faith in Jesus Christ. Theological error and compromising on truth will turn you into somebody that today you wish you weren't. And another way, there are many more, but another way is bitterness, anger, rage, and unforgiveness. Bitterness, anger, rage, and unforgiveness has a way of twisting and warping your heart. And if you continue to foster rage and anger and bitterness, you you will not recognize your own heart years from now. That's probably what twisted the person that you don't want to be like in the first place. Bitterness, anger, rage, theological error, greed, wealth, power, comfort, immoral license, giving yourself grace in Christ to do whatever you want to do rather than submitting to our Lord and Master Jesus Christ. When you hold on to all those things, you become warped and twisted and your heart is darkened. And the next thing you know, years later, you're a critical negative, hateful person who knows the word of God. (laughs) The the most unusual thing I've ever seen is the most hateful people I know can quote scripture left and right. And they're like Jesus said to the Pharisees, woe to you, you clean the outside of the cup, but inside you're 
full of dead men's bones. They look nothing like Jesus, who is gentle and lowly in heart and overflowing with grace and mercy to the repentant. And grace and mercy flows from us to those fellow sinners in our life. Well, that's our sermon today. Don't be like Cain. Don't be like Balaam. And don't be like Korah. Not that Korah, but Korah from number 16. Father, we thank you for your word. It's good for us to be here. It's good for us to be under the word of God, to be under authority, to be um, with believers who know us and love us and care for us and, and who know and love and care for you. Uh, it's in the context of accountability and uh, biblical fellowship like this that we're able to stand up to each other and say, hey, I'm I'm sinner. I, I've sinned against the Lord in this way and that. And, and I just need you to pray for me that I would repent of that sin. I see myself in this way, that I reject authority or that I'm greedy and I compromise my morals and values uh, for... I compromise my righteousness so I can save a few bucks. And maybe in some other way, Lord, you are putting your finger on the sin that needs to be repented of today. I know that in the first service, after I preached, I had to go back and and spend time on my knees, just praying and asking forgiveness and grace uh, and, and for repentance for sins that I struggle in. And so I thank you, Lord, for your mercy and your grace that before you pronounce woe, you give lots of warning. Praise you for your grace and mercy. But help us not to get to a point where woe is pronounced before we're willing to repent. Give us a soft, uh, pliable heart that is willing to respond to conviction from you before it's too late, before we do more damage in our life and more damage to the name of Jesus Christ and to the gospel, and to the church. And in a a book like Jude, it may be tempting for some to be on the lookout for those to contend with, but oftentimes scripture has to flow through us first. And so the right question might not be who is uh, the wolf. The right question might be, Lord, am I the wolf? Am I the one who is uh, more like Korah or Balaam or Cain? Am I the one who is like faithless Israel? Am I the one who is like the angels who left their place of authority? Am I the one uh, like Sodom and Gomorrah who continually lives in immorality with a license that perverts the grace of God into sensuality, that is always grateful for forgiveness, but is never grateful for the laws uh, and resisting temptation and the restriction on our flesh? Would you give us grace and strength to walk in truth and repentance and humility with one another and that you may help us to live a life that pleases you and that is honoring to you, not just so that we can be uh, like the people we want to be like and not like the people that we don't want to be like, but so that we can be uh, like you. We, we repent from something, but more importantly, we repent to someone. We repent to you, Jesus, and it, in your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. We pray that we would find that in Jesus' name. Amen.